I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second. And the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Right? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. End of brief. Now, by the end of that reading, you might be wondering, I'm not sure if I have an ear to hear exactly what the Spirit is saying to the churches here. Because there's a lot of symbolic language used already. There's a lot of meaning and there's a lot of words used that we might not be very familiar with. And so it's going to take a little bit of time for us tonight as we dig into this passage 
to get an understanding of what Jesus is saying to his churches. And by extension, what he's saying to us as his church here tonight. So let's just go ahead and dig in. What is it that Jesus is saying to us through these churches he's writing to? Well, first of all, I think it's pretty clear what he's saying to them is that he is with them and knows them. And by extension, he is with us and knows us. Jesus points out at the very beginning, he's the one who holds the church in his hand and is walking among us. The one, he says, verse 1, to the angel of the church, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He's, he's got the churches in his right hand. And he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among them. Now, if you remember from last week, we, we learned that the seven golden lampstands uh, represented the seven different churches he's writing to, while the seven different stars represented seven angels of the churches. Now, these angels uh, could be understood to represent the pastors or uh, leaders of these churches, since the word for angel literally is just the word uh, messenger in Greek, or the word can simply be understood as supernatural guardian angels responsible for each congregation. Either understanding is really okay with the context. I kind of like the idea that each congregation doesn't just have a pastor, but that God has given each congregation an angel to watch over and guide the church. But either way, the point is, Jesus is in the midst of his church. Not only that, but he is with us and knows us in a very specific way. One of the things we notice in the beginning of each of the addresses to the churches, if you listen carefully, is that Jesus begins each one with a different title for himself. Did you notice that? So the church in Ephesus, he begins with, or to the church in, yeah, in Ephesus, he begins by referring to himself as the one in the midst of the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. To the church in Smyrna, he is the, quote, first and the last who died and came to life to remind them that he holds the power over eternal life. To the church in Pergamum, he is the one who has the two-edged sword. That is, the one who is the word of God. That is what the double-edged sword means. In the book of Hebrews, we're told the word of God is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword. And so this is what Jesus means when he speaks this way. And to the church in Thyatira, he is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze to emphasize his perceptive power and his mighty strength. And each one of the attributes mentioned by Jesus' uh, titles here are attributes that would specifically have mattered to each church's situation. And we'll get into what that situation was in just a bit. But first, what's the point? take home today, as his church today. Jesus is with Epiphany today. Jesus knows Epiphany today. This is not a church built by us. It is not a church certainly built by me. We are not facing 
the city we are surrounded by and that we are in the midst of alone? We're not responsible for making this church happen ultimately. He is in our midst and he is the one that will sustain us or for that matter, he is the one in his great plan that we can't fully know that might even allow us to fall. Epiphany is not our church. It's Jesus' church. He knows us and he knows what we need. I shared this before here, but I think some of you are here that haven't heard this. I've seen this multiple times in my life as a pastor. Unfortunately, I haven't always learned the lessons the easy way. I remember a few years after I had begun serving as a pastor at a church I served in California, the major recession hit the country, you know, 2008, 2009 time. And the people of the church there were primarily middle class, and there was lots of blue-collar workers uh, that were suddenly out of work. And of course, this, this meant that the church's offerings were down significantly, and months and months went by where, where we had taken from our reserve fund, we had a reserve fund for times like this in order to basically pay the basic bills and to, and to just keep the lights on, you know? And eventually, the reserve fund got dangerously low. And so the leaders of the church were meeting urgently to try and figure out what to do. And everything we tried failed. I mean, everything we tried failed. We strategized. I mean, I had major business leaders. I had very thoughtful leaders as part of my leadership team that were from that had been successful in various other industries, they were used to strategizing to figure out how to fix the problem. But everything we did continued to fail. And we were draining those reserve funds, and man, pretty soon it was like, a couple months, we're not going to be able to pay rent at all. And so finally, I became desperate enough that I called a meeting with the leaders, and I said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do, new strategy. We're going to gather every week to pray. That's what we're going to do. For an hour, we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to guide us and direct us to figure out what to do. And we did. There was not ever, during those prayer times, an audible uh, response from God. He never said, I want you to do this and I want you to spend this. No, we still didn't feel like we knew what was going on, but we continued to meet in prayer. Well, finally, the time came. We really didn't have any other options. I met with the leaders and they said, I think it's time we have to look for a new space. We're not going to be able to afford the rent at this space anymore. So, uh, Eric, tomorrow, if you can start maybe calling around to different community centers, maybe schools, and see if they can uh, rent to us, you know, for cheap, just to be gracious to us, and see if we can continue this thing. And so, I got up the next morning, and I went into my office, and I, uh, and I started the process of making phone calls. And then I remembered, darn it, I'm not going to be able to get to what I was told to do because I, I just, I had forgotten about it. I had agreed to meet with this pastor from the south side of the city that morning. And I was, 
I, I wasn't, I really didn't want to meet with him. I was urgently, you know, going towards what the leaders told me to do. I mean, all these places. But I had made the plans, and I'm, you know, trying to be a man of my word, and sorry, I'm going to meet with him. About 20 minutes after I get in the office, a man named Jason, a pastor from this church, and his assistant Tom walk in. They sit down, and I say, you know, Happy to have you here. What, what can I do for you? Uh, sort of in the middle of something kind of big right now. And they said, well, here's the deal, Pastor. We're from the south side of town. You're from the north side of town. We just found out that you existed about a week or two ago as we were driving by. And I thought, you know, I wonder if there's anything we can do to come alongside this church's ministry. I said, well, to be honest, we're in kind of a tight spot right now. We, I'm actually looking for a new building. And I don't know if we're going to be able to find a place that can house us with the amount of space we need. And he said, well, Pastor, it just so happens that we have a ton of space at our place. What would you think about moving your church down to our location? <clears throat> By the end of the day, the end of the day, they had offered us to meet in their space for free. And we did. For years. Developed a wonderful partnership with this church. I could have never seen that coming in a million years. I had no idea they were going to walk in that morning and say, hey, it turns out you need a church. Here's a church. But you know who didn't know that? The one who holds us in his right hand and walks in our midst. So, Jesus knows his church and walks among them. That said, one of the things that becomes abundantly clear in our reading of the church is, is that since Jesus does know us and know his church so well, that means he knows all the things about the church. And that means the good, and the bad, and the ugly, and <laughs> He knows it all. So that leads... So the second point we find in this passage, Jesus knows that his church is an unfinished work slash project. If you look at the churches, we notice there's, there really is a mix of good and bad with almost all of them. Opportunities and challenges face all of them. And it doesn't really change for all seven. Listen to the first church in Ephesus. There are churches that, on the one hand, are lauded for their doctrinal discernment. Listen, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles or not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is the kind of church 
that searches the scriptures to prove what's true and to know what's false. It's the kind of body that does not allow even a hint of false teaching to enter its midst. This, Jesus says, good job. But, as important as doctrine is and pure teaching is, it is not everything. As Jesus will go on in verse 4 to say, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place and let you leave. Jesus is saying, you know, the church in Ephesus had become a church of truth and zeal for the truth, but without love for God and neighbor. A place of discernment without compassion for one another. Sadly, this still can be a problem for churches that highly value doctrinal precision today. If you don't believe me, just Google or go on Twitter and look up so-called discernment ministries. They're everywhere, and usually they're garbage. They are people heavy on truth and almost zero compassion. These groups pride themselves on their great ability to split theological and doctrinal hairs, but goodness gracious, you'll never see a group that comes off more cold, more cruel, and more unloving to their opponents than some of these so-called ministries. And yet, as Jesus says to the Ephesian church, it probably hasn't always been this way for these people. So Jesus says, listen, repent and return to your former ways of love. The next church you need is the only one in chapter 2 that, that actually isn't rebuked for a sin problem, which is awesome. It's the one church in chapter 2 where there's no rebuke for any, any bad stuff. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that the church in Smyrna doesn't have a major challenge coming their way. Listen to what Jesus says in the first line. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Do you hear how specific Jesus is? Do you think he knows this church? Ten days. That's how long it's going to last, guys. Ten days. The church in Smyrna doesn't have resources, and they're facing persecution. from a, It sounds like the Jewish leadership of the area they live in, which, of course, still in the first century was very much a problem. The Pharisees and the scribes felt threatened by the church's growth and thus tried to find ways to stamp it out all the time. Now, this still continues to this day. It's just the groups that are doing the persecuting are different. But, you know, I don't know if you're, if you're aware of this, but sometimes it's helpful to be reminded. From, from all the records we have throughout church history, the church is more persecuted around the world today than it's ever been. We tend not to think about it because, well, you're here in an air conditioned building tonight and no one threatened you on the way in. No one cares. 
simple. But in the rest of the world, in so many places, persecution can be brutal. So Jesus' exhortation then is be faithful. Be faithful unto death. In other words, continue standing fast. Continue to hold up. Don't give up. I can't help, and this is not related in a specific, or in this very specific way when it comes to persecution, but I can't help but think about something my grandfather told me. When I think about Jesus saying, don't give up, stay faithful. I went to my grandfather a little bit before I was to be married to, to my wife, Missy, which we just celebrated 16 years on, on Friday. And right before I was to marry her, I, I wanted to talk to man that had had, in my mind, the most successful marriage of anybody I knew. I mean, he married to my grandmother for over 60 years, and, and almost every time she would come into the room, he would, you know, tell me how, look at her, she's so beautiful, and, and I, you know, he would do this kind of stuff all the time, and she'd get, like, giggly, you know. I just thought, man, this guy's the most charming dude ever, and he's been married for so long. Give me the secrets, Grandpa. Let me know how to do this. I said, what's the secret to marriage, to a lifelong happy marriage. And what he said surprised me. He, he told me that it wasn't always great and that for quite a while in their earlier days as the kids were growing up they just didn't get along at all and really didn't enjoy being around each other. told me there were days that he really didn't want to go home to her or the kids because it was just miserable together. And then he said, here's the secret. You keep going home anyway. Even when you don't feel like it. You just keep walking in that door. Well, sense in which Jesus is saying to this church, keep going home. Don't give up. Don't give up. The third church we meet is Pergamon, Revelation 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine living in that town? Where do you live? Uh, you, you know, well, you know where Satan's throne is? Just right around the corner. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, he's a martyr, who was killed among you where Satan was. Jesus lauds this church, Pergamon, for the very thing he just exhorted the church in Smyrna to, faithfulness to him and his word. Indeed, the, the scholar Dennis Johnson notes that the city had a reason or had a reputation for being Satan's throne because it was dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. Another temple and a related medical college was dedicated to Asclepius, the savior, quote-unquote, by the way, whose symbol was a snake, a serpent. And there was an enormous altar to Zeus, the savior on the city's high point. So any of those idolatrous monuments, maybe all three in combination, or why Jesus would say, I know where you live. You're in Satan's <coughs> throne. 
He loves the poor. He's just, you've, you've held out. But like every church, this is, it doesn't mean everything's just right yet. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And he goes on to say, you've got some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We, we just don't. I mean, there's some that have speculated things about this group because they're mentioned in Revelation. We just don't know much. But based on Jesus' description that they were sort of like Balaam and Balaam, this is probably a group of people that are in the church that are justifying all sorts of sexual immorality and idolatrous practices with the church. So they are tempting people away that are part of the church to get involved in all sorts of sexual promiscuity, and they're stamping Jesus' approval upon it. They're saying, no, 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 this is a good way to worship. It is, it is striking to me how often in the Bible the people of God are dragged away and torn apart by their willingness to engage in sexual unfaithfulness. It seems so often to be a problem within the church in the early days and even today. I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen torn apart by. I can't tell you how many churches I've seen torn apart by a pastor succumbing to it. Uh, this is why I'm convinced Paul is so urgent in his letters, saying things in, to the Corinthian church like, flee sexual morality. Run away from it. It's, it tears everything apart. And Jesus doesn't want to see that happen in this church. And so what does he say again? Therefore, repent. What's the remedy? Repent. Not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of men. Again, he's referencing his word there. And then we come to the church in Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, this church is crushing it. They seem to be growing in love and service to one another. That is awesome. You want to see that? But even still, they're not where they need to be. Yet either. Verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, Jezebel was this Old Testament figure that represented everything debauched and perverse and wrong with idolatrous ways of thought. And Jesus says, because you have tolerated her and allowed this teaching to spread. I'm going to crush her. He's not talking about a literal woman named Jezebel. He's talking about a movement inspired by this Jezebel character in the Old Testament that spread in the church. And yet what it starts with is just toleration. Now let me there are many, many situations in life where tolerance and understanding for others is essential and necessary for us to get along. But when it comes to evil that is tearing families apart, evil that is leading people to worship false gods, evil that is leading people to do violence to their neighbor, to disobey God within the church, 
no toleration of that which destroys the neighbor. I can imagine this church starting off simply not wanting to have the confrontation with whoever this person or group was doing these things. But then eventually being led down the path of no return. Sadly, this, this happens all too easily in churches. I found in my experience, not all experiences with church, but a lot of the time, uh, the, the culture of churches is very non-confrontational. They don't want to have to confront anything that's uncomfortable. And so we're just sort of like, kind of walk on ice, you know, around everybody and you won't say anything that's uncomfortable. And I, I have to believe that the church in Thyatira was started off in it. It's like, oh, you're going to go do the Jezebel thing and have an orgy? Oh, okay, well, that, you know, we might have been, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. Like, right, I mean, that's just the way it starts. That's the way it starts. Like, hey, hey, I'm not, hey who am I? Who am I? Well, like, you're saying, you're saying, it's not good. Like, like, it's okay to be like, hey, I don't think it's the best use of your body. Hey, man, I care about you. I don't think it's a great idea to get, like, go have a drug-induced orgy in the name of worship. Like, it's probably, bro, I, I love you. I'm not trying to be a killjoy, but, uh, you know, probably not a good use of the body. And again, what is Jesus' exhortation to that? Verse 24. Those who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The point of all this, the point of all this is that every church, every church, including ours, is an unfinished project still in the hands of Jesus. This is what I find so comforting, is that as much as these churches have all these problems, which every church to some degree or another has, still working in you on an individual and on a corporate basis. It's not done. And that means we have much to look forward to as Jesus closes out his letters to each of the churches. Even as he rebukes and exhorts them, he gives them a promise too of what is coming to those who repent. To the church in Ephesus, one day you're going to eat from the tree of life and eternity and never die again. To the church in Smyrna, who would face such persecution and even death, Jesus promises them what? The crown of life. And that they will have victory over the second death. Yes, you might be persecuted now, but it won't last forever, Smyrna. To the church in Pergamum, who were surrounded by satanic and idolatrous activity, he promises them hidden manna, that is, that food, hearkening us back to the time that God provided bread from heaven for the children of Israel as they moved through the place of Satan's abode, the wilderness. God is saying, I will provide for you in the midst of your time here on earth as you walk through the wilderness. And I will not only do that, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. And you say, what on earth is the white stone? I have no idea what this is. Well, if we go back and we find out what the historian Hammer says, he tells us that white stones could be used for all sorts of things that apply here. They were used as tokens signifying a juror's vote to acquit. They were used as admission to entertainment events. They were used as honorable discharge from 
gladiatorial combat, where they were used for initiation into a worshiping community. However, Jesus needs to hear all of them apply. Jesus is saying to this church, I'm giving you access. And you no longer are who you were, I'm giving you a new name. Just like Saul was once Saul, and I turned an idiot to Paul, I make people that have totally blown up their life and turned them into new creations. Thyatira, that place where so much metalwork was done, that was what they were known for. It's not an accident then that Jesus says at the end, guess what I got for you guys? I've got a rod of iron for you to rule the nations with, for you to crush before your feet and that they will possess the morning star which is ultimately an Old Testament title for Jesus all of these churches are promised gifts and indeed those same promises are held up to you and I tonight who are gathered here because Jesus has lived has died and risen from the grave he promises you that in the midst of your failures and your challenges and your setbacks and your victories that ultimately because of his spirit's work in your life you will be indeed given the white stone that acquits you of your sins, grants you entrance into a new kingdom that will be sustained by the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, that will wear the crown of life, and that we will one day rule the world next to our morning star, Jesus Christ, and that we will feast for eternity from the tree of life. And so as we sojourn here, Epiphany Church, remember, one who is holding you in his hand, who is in our midst, and who promises the gifts that are to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your care for your churches. I think about us here at Epiphany. What do you need to rebuke us for? What are you encouraged by and want us for? Oh Lord, give us humility to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come as children saying with one voice together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 